It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. David's big year for elections across the world, and also there is one here in the UK. Uh, the polls seem to be narrowing, though. Time on with Labour. Maybe it's not going to be as massive a landslide for Labour as the as we were thinking. And that has all sorts of implications. Now, the City of London is also trying to figure out now what they've gained from 14 years of Conservative leadership. And what might happen uh, if we do indeed get a change of administration in the coming months. Welcome to In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations and the stories shaping the world of finance. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacroix. And this week, we have with us Miles Selleck, the Chief Executive Officer at the City UK. That's the trade body which represents financial and professional services here in the UK. Miles, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me. I mean, this is a big year for UK business as they try and figure out what a possible Labour government means for them. How have the Tories done so far? The Tories clearly are struggling the polls. We had a dinner with some Conservative candidates last night. I think they were determined. You know, they felt What's the, the mood. Uh, determined. Well, they were determined. They felt the the mood in their patch was yeah. you know was not reflective of where the polls were. Uh, but you know, in they, denial or well, I mean, it was certainly not for, for me to just to determine whether or not they're in denial or not. But there was a sense of look, they've got a yeah. you know they've got a tough mountain. Uh, uh, mountain to climb. But they are clearly on the in in Westminster and Whitehall and in the constituencies. They are moving towards election mode. They're moving towards knocking on doors. From our point of view, in industry. Really, whoever wins the next general election, from the point of view of financial and professional services, there's a lot of continuity uh, about. That was one of the big things that Labour pushed at their recent business conference. There's uh, a lot of consistency in policy. And certainly what we're hearing from international investors, I was in Hong Kong and Shanghai a couple of weeks ago, is is actually, there's it seems to be pretty much business as usual from the point of view of sort of macro policy in this kind of space. I mean, all the, the wobbles this week with Labour, polls narrowed quite a mm. bit. I, I do wonder a little bit at how much of this really breaks through. Does I, it become I, a little bit more uncertain? I don't know. As I say, at this dinner with the Tory PPCs, the, the, the start of it was all, you know, it's, it's all right on my patch, that doesn't fit with the polls. By the end of it, it was a Slightly different, yeah, slightly different equation. I think they're expecting, quite a few of them are expecting a bit of a battering. It feels like if we get the but the landslide scenario is, well, that's okay, we flip to Labour, but at least it's secure and stable. But there's another outcome potentially, which is it's a bit closer and we have a hung parliament. This is the thing that worries industry and investors, which is that if you end up with a narrow Labour majority or no majority at all, or no the Tories and the SNP and maybe Kingmakers... Yeah, it, it, you're back to the political risk and the political instability. So if there is going to be a decision, I think certainly the members we speak to would rather that it was a decisive result. So you end up with Labour with 50, 60 or more in, in a majority, or if it's the Tories with 50 or 60 more, but that, that doesn't look likely. So it's much, much better to have consistency, clarity and a direction of travel. And as I say, genuinely, 
most of the people we speak to don't see that much of a difference in the, in the big picture stuff. Carrie will be there to a certain degree. We'll see how that happens. The non-DOM things will be there to a certain degree. We'll see how that plays through. But private Pri schools, private school fees. Do you know what? Private <laughs> school fees is. get so much cut through. So genuinely, I was talking to this businessman in Hong Kong who sent his kids to UK private schools and then UK universities. And he said, you guys are getting complacent because yeah. this is substantially increasing the cost. So it would make would have made me think twice, he said, about sending the kids to a private school. So no, I think that one's going to get more, I think, more difficult. And it's the one realize. policy that Rachel Reeves, they're sticking with. I mean, they talk about it all the time because yeah. obviously it has political cut through yes. domestically. Yeah, right. And fiscally, it's not going to make a huge amount of difference. Yeah, but it won't be a huge. Won't be making, I can't see that it makes a huge amount of money. Uh, I suspect you end up with a bunch of people dropping out of, uh, dropping their kids out of the private schools, the ones who are sort of on the edge of affordability. Uh, but it doesn't raise a life-changing amount of money from a government's perspective. Uh, but I think it does have a potential impact, just from the conversations we've had, at least with some people in terms of how they look at the UK. Uh, and I think that sort of sense of the political driver uh, on that being, it's one of those things that plays well to the Labour base, but also plays well to the sense that people at the upper end of the income scale have done very well over recent years. Uh, and if there, is, if there are going to be tax changes uh, over the coming years, I suspect the polling would show that their support that lands on those with the, with the broadest shoulders. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Mas, I guess the question is, we don't really have the policies, right, in mm. terms of corporate taxation from labor yet. We don't really know what they do with carried interest. So at the moment, there's been a big push, and we've seen that through all of our reporting, Dave, that mm. you know the, the labor wants to woo business without giving too much details. Yeah, it's a bit thin, isn't it, Miles? I thought the business conference was interesting. So I think the big uh, headline from that was Rachel Reeves's commitment on corporation right. tax. So she said headline rate will remain at 25%, uh, and they're going to go for the stability piece. One of the things we've been saying to government and to the opposition for a while is actually when George Osborne was chancellor, he had this commitment that the UK would always be in the bottom quartile of the G8 uh, on corporation tax. And that just helped with tax planning. You kind of knew which direction things were going in. It just made life a little bit easier in terms of anticipation. 
But the reality is you've got debt at high levels, although I think sometimes the UK story is slightly overdone. I think we are the second lowest debt to GDP ratio in the G7, but it's clearly pretty high by historical standards. There's whoever wins the next general election, there's going to be a demand to invest in infrastructure, in uh, public services, so health, in schools. There's the need to rearm, which seems to be a cross-party basis. And this isn't just something that we're seeing in the UK. This is across the West. So what gives? There's not much room really to increase debt. They seem to have closed off increases in taxation. So our sense is there'll be a dash for growth. And that certainly seems to be the approach that Labour's taking. I suspect that will be what the Tories will have to go for as well. And that brings industries like ours into play. So what can you do in terms of unlocking the investment that potentially sits in the private sector on things like green finance and the shift to net zero, but also potentially on driving things such as reinvestment in infrastructure and elsewhere? So there's not much space, is there? I mean, you, know, you talked about the pro going for growth. We can't slash taxes and ramp up spending in those ways. So there's not much in it, is there? Yeah, I mean, one thing I'd say, is, and full credit to the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, I think they have, to a certain degree, to a very large degree, sort of reclaimed the UK's reputation for stability. And, you know, one of the things the UK's sort of historically had is this sort of sense of, you know, we're a bit boring and predictable and you'll get a slightly so better again. return. Yeah, slightly yeah. better return yeah, here than you might good. elsewhere. But and the, boring what, what is did good. they call it? The moron premium. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, the FT, I think, called it the And when you talk premium. to people in Singapore, yeah. I mean, do you think the moron the more premium is gone. Uh, I think there is definitely a sense that the UK is back into a more stable, more predictable place. And I think it's also, it's not just what happened over that summer, that sort of quasi Quarteng Liz Truss summer. You know, there is no getting away from the fact that Brexit created uh, a space where the UK was seen as politically, you know, much too exciting and unpredictable. You then had the 2017 general election, which brought the possibility of a Corbyn government into play. Uh, you could even go further back and say you look at 2014 and the Scottish independence referendum. The UK has been historically uh, unusually politically interesting. We did a dinner with some Italian counterparts a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, at the end of the dinner, uh, one of the uh, Italians stood up and he said, I'd like to propose a toast of thanks to our British friends uh, for swapping their politics with ours. Uh, and it was, <laughs> it was that, the economist did that cover. The, upset. I, upset. Italian, the Italian, All Italians. Brit Brittany, I think they had upset, on the front, yeah. right? Yeah. With, yeah. And, uh, and I think yeah. everyone was outraged. I'm, I'm sorry you don't have, you know, as good as pasta as the Italians <laughs> or, or the weather, frankly. <laughs> but I guess the question is, when you look at the numbers, if you look at what happened to servicing debt pre-COVID mm. and then because of inflation, I think debt servicing costs are about 50 billion pounds higher than pre-pandemic days. So to your point, I, I don't see how any party can actually cut taxes uh, unless you go into you know austerity again. Yeah, I, th I think it's very difficult to see where tax cuts come from. Uh, and certainly, I don't think that growth can only be driven by tax cuts in any case. I think what's interesting is actually if you look at the United States, uh, where you've had the CHIPS Act and you've had the Inflation Reduction Act, and you know the US is going gangbusters uh, uh, in terms of economic growth at the moment. Uh, and that is a very active utilization of the state. Uh, and it was the same in many ways, actually, ironically enough, under Trump. Very similar approach on, under but Trump. We can't do that here, can we? And we've just seen this with Labour having to row back their green spending because so, the sums don't add up here. We can't, you know, we're not the United States. We can't splurge the cash. We can't, to... although whenever we raise this with government, government makes the point that if you look at the overall level of subsidies and support across the piece on green, that actually it's a comparable amount of GDP. Now, that's fine, but it's a GDP of 2.8 trillion versus a GDP of nearly 10 times that. 
So the, the impact is different. That's also had an impact on capital markets. It's sort of dragged a huge amount of investment into the US and a huge amount of uh, business into the US. But I think there is this point about the role of the state as we move forward. We were talking to one of the, the people advising Labour a little while ago, and he said, we're moving towards something that he termed the fourth way. So we've kind of had Tony Blair's third way. And he, I don't think this is a sort of, you know, trademarked Keir Starmer moment. The way he put it was that this is the fourth way, which is an active interventionist state working in partnership with dynamic free markets. But they've just dialed it back. I mean, were you disappointed to see that? Ambitions scaled back. On so the I think I think I think that was a very sensible approach. That it's the boring uh, approach. They, they, it was the boring approach. Yeah. Ra Rachel Reeves turned around and said, "We made this commitment under a different set of circumstances." To your point, Francine, the debt servicing levels were very different. We're therefore having to look at what we do in terms of how we move forward. I don't think that there is a reduction in the commitment to net zero from that. I think it's just they're looking at how they do that in different yeah, ways. That makes work. But I think it also therefore points to what do you do in terms of blended finance? You know, I was at COP28 in uh, November, as I'm sure you guys were. One of the big things that came out of that discussion was how do you utilise, how do you harness the private sector in service of driving green and sustainable finance, the move to net zero, adaptation, etc.? But isn't there a bigger concern here of, of what the City of London becomes? So, you know, at your annual dinner, the Chancellor was saying, well, the UK and actually the City of London needs to become the next NASDAQ. We're going to focus on technology. I mean, he may not be Chancellor for much longer. I don't know whether technology and green bonds is going to be the thing that Labour want to harness. So, look, that's absolutely where I think we're heading towards. It is this sort of sense of a high-tech economy based on high amounts of innovation. That'll require, in our view, a different approach on uh, regulation. Uh, so the regulatory approach historically mm -hmm. on tech, on data has been... And migration? And potentially on migration. We've got to be able to attract the best in the world here. And we've also got to be able to recruit uh, from, the best in the, uh, from the best in the UK as well. So it's not just about bringing people in. It is about, to use a term, growing our own timber. Can we really compete though here? I mean, it's good to hear the Chancellor talk about the focus on tech. We've been looking at the results we've been seeing from the tech, front, you know, the massive numbers coming out of the United States. And the one that really struck me was looking at Arm, which yeah. so doubled in price. Yeah. Now, this is a British company, yeah. British founded, and chose to list in America. And it's reaping the rewards now, the share price. I think it's now worth something like 150 or so billion dollars. It's one of the biggest capped companies now, Britain, like but it chose to go and list in America, it made that decision. I mean, how can we um, capture the talent that's mm. here, capture the potential and, mm. and stop it flowing over the Atlantic? So I, I th I'm, I'm a little more positive actually on that. So firstly, if you look at fintech, there are three major fintech industries globally. It's the US, it's China, it's the UK. It's the same with AI, US, China, UK. And if you look at the lead the UK's got in Europe, it's often way ahead, most years in terms of investment, it's way ahead of France, Germany, Italy. I mean, France would combined. push back against that. The French would, the French would, and you can point to certain <laughs> surveys about the number of... Uh, Listed uh, companies in, in, and, or technology And also funds. the number of investments yeah. they've had, but the amount, the actual quantum, the, the UK continues to be ahead. Uh, and I think the UK is still a much more attractive place. It has the advantage of the universities. So we have, we have the second biggest number of top 100 universities anywhere in the world, which for a country of fewer than seven million people is still pretty impressive. You can look at the number of people who are coming in as foreign students. The UK continues to be a really attractive place to come as a foreign student, second only to the US and arguably in some ways ahead. So I think the talent piece is absolutely critical. You've raised a really important point on valuation. I think Arm is a fantastic success story. I mean, full credit to the guys there. But actually, if you look at UK companies that operate predominantly in the UK who list in the US, typically 
18 to 24 months after um, initial listing, uh, their valuation is below that of their American counterparts. So it's, it's a more complex story than I think is sometimes pointed to. Miles, what does the City of London Financial Services actually want from Labour right now? Is there a danger that if, you know, a Chancellor and then a Prime Minister that understood hedge funds, that understood Wall Street, couldn't get it right, that whoever comes next, you know, has even less of a chance? So I said the first thing we wanted, we got, which was continuity on the Financial Services and Markets Act and the Edinburgh reforms and the Mansion House reforms. And Every time, you know, we at City UK or our members see Rachel Reeves or Tulip Sadiq or Darren Jones, they are at pains to stress in their financial services report that came out a couple of weeks ago said the same thing. This is about continuity on the Financial Services and Markets Act on a more specific basis. For five years, right? That's uh, what they pledged. So I think that it was it was more that they will continue to push the reforms that have been set forward. I think that the key thing in terms of where the rubber hits the road on this isn't actually the legislation. It's the way that the regulators are now held to account on things such as the secondary objective on economic growth uh, and competitiveness. So recently, the, the um, uh, Secretary of State for Business and Trade, Kemi Badenoch, had an exchange of letters with the new CEO of the Financial Reporting Council, Richard Moriarty, uh, talking about how they both wanted to hardwire competitiveness into the way the FRC works. Um, we thought that was a critical element in terms of the Financial and Serv- Services and Markets Act, that the uh, FCA and the PRA are held to account on how they are, uh, implement that secondary objective, because otherwise it's just there on paper. It will always potentially fall by the wayside when something more urgent comes up. But if you're going to deal with the sort of things we were talking about earlier, which is economic growth, which is investment in public services, increases in defence spending, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you're not increasing taxes and you're not increasing debt, the only way you get this is growth. And we are one of the, you know, there's just no getting away from this. This isn't me, you know, sort of waving the flag for financial services. It's just an economic reality our industry's got to be a critical part of delivering that nationally and at sort of regional level as well. So um, the KPIs, the key performance indicators that have been put forward on that are the critical element. The government's doing some work on that at the moment, how Labour then acts when they get in, the approach they take to those and the approach they take to the way that you incentivise risk and growth in the economy is going to be critical. Are there any specific measures that you can see down the pipe that are going to really help that? How can the capital markets really expand in this country? How can the liquidity levels deepen? How can there be more appetite for risk? And the London Stock Exchange sort of reverse this decline it's been in in terms of the size of its market. Yeah. And look, the the sort of thing here is that you've got to take a different approach on risk and how that incentivizes growth. And one of the problems that we've got at the moment is that the regulators, fair play to the regulators, we have genuinely fantastic regulators here in the UK. But they are not incentivized to do anything other than prevent things from going wrong. So if you look at, I'm probably not going to win myself any friends at the Treasury Select (laughs) Committee on this one. Um, uh, This may be my first and last appearance on your podcast. Um, So uh, the, you know, when Nikhil Ratti uh, or Sam Woods go to the Treasury Select Committee, typically the questions they get from the members of the Treasury Select Committee aren't, what are you doing to drive competitiveness? They aren't, what are you doing to drive growth? They are, my constituents just lost 250 quid on something. What are you going to do about it? Consumer protection. It's consumer protection. It's important. Which is hugely important. And I'm in no way denigrating that. But it is important that we strike the right balance between looking after consumers and the retail end of this and making sure that we are incentivising and giving regulators the air cover 
to go in and actually drive growth. And I think Nick Hill gets it, and I think the team around him get it. But that is not always the lived experience, if you like, if I can use that term, in terms of the supervisory visits and the enforcement visits that companies get from their, their day-to-day team. Incentivizing, I mean, is it through ISAs? Is it UK ISAs? I know we had Yeah, our- the UK ISAs. This came up yeah. at your event, didn't it? This idea that most countries would give a tax break to people to in- invest in funds that might yeah. actually invest back into the UK. Yeah, the Canadians are like the poster child on this. Right. Uh, so the British ISA, I think, if we end up with something like a British ISA, of which we would be hugely supportive, it could well be based on what they've done in Canada, which is exactly as you say, there's a sort of different tra- tax wrapper uh, on on those sorts of uh, investments. And you've got to look also at what's happened in the UK. You touched on the sort of liquidity and the depth of the capital markets. If you look at the the proportion of British uh, household uh, assets that are in equities, uh, it's about 11% in the UK. Uh, In the US, it's north of 40. In France and Germany, which aren't considered great sort of shareholding democracies, it's, you know, north of 30. The UK has fallen behind on this. It's a point we've raised consistently. And it's one of the reasons why you've got some companies looking at the UK and opening up in the UK from the point of view of there's an opportunity here because it's at such a low base that you can sort of drive that forward. But absolutely, I think this is a potential opportunity. So the Chancellor is make, making good noises about it. It's a great column out on Bloomberg by Merrin Somerset Webb, really advocating for this. But yeah. you might only have numbers. a few months left, mightn't mm-hmm. So do you think that's something that you would see Rachel Reeves picking up on? I'd hope so. And one of the things that I think we, we've certainly seen in this space over a number of years now is, and full credit to John Glenn, who was the city minister who took this forward, that leaving the European Union and I don't want to turn this into a backward-looking conversation, but leaving the European Union did mean we had to look at everything, almost from sort of first principles, in terms of how regulation worked, in terms of the systems that were in place, in terms of how we compared against other uh, key markets. There were 40 different consultations that John Glenn, as city minister, took through. He worked very closely and uh, kept his counterparts on the Labour side sort of cited on this. I think that's been done uh, by his successors as well. So there is a degree of cross-party consensus, at least on the bigger pictures here. So I would very much hope that Rachel Reeves would uh, take that forward. We would certainly urge Labour, uh, if they win the next general election, to take that forward. We think it's a it's a sort of win-win scenario from a whole range of areas. Can I talk about some of the numbers? Because Marin kind of laid it out in her column, and that was really interesting. I mean, she says basically the ISA costs the UK taxpayer around four billion pounds in tax revenue for gone. And of course, there's no obligation for the recipients uh, to have any incentives to invest back in the UK. I guess is the concern. I mean, this is a catch twenty two because you, you need growth for companies to get bigger in the UK. Because if you look at what's been doing really well, for example, in the FTSE, mm. it's the oil majors, yeah. and that and that's not a, a proper UK play. Mm. Mm. It's, it's what comes first like the chicken or the egg so it's it's a tricky one this is the chart i think the answer the chancellor gave you uh you know which was suitably delphic in terms of not giving away He's too much <laughs> uh, of his uh of his budget uh, plans but this is the point that he raised you know it is it is a complex picture uh, it has fiscal implications um i don't think it is a magic bullet i think it is part of a set of solutions that we need to look at so there's a huge amount of work that we've been doing that stock exchange have been doing uk finance the banking organisation have been doing and others on how do you revitalize capital markets now you know in the uk and how do you revitalize listings uh, in the uk now some of this is stuff that you can uh, put in place and government is seeking to put in place through initiatives potentially like the british isa there are other things we could do. We think that looking at taxation, uh, stamp duty would uh, be well stock, worth exploring. Stock trading, stamp right. duty. Yeah, yeah. Which where the UK is where we is, don't, where lots of places don't have that. Exactly. We're making our own lives harder in terms of competitive position when we look at our major uh, peers. Loosen listing rules. I mean, that was one of the problems with ARM or tech in general, isn't it? Around the it's 
it's more beneficial for founders and startups or they view it as more beneficial than the American regime. Should we loosen those, which are viewed by there, you? There have been proposals on the premium and the standard listing. The FRC has been looking at how, what you can do in terms of reporting requirements and streamlining all of this. But you know, we've got to we've got to recognise this is this is not something, particularly for an international financial centre. You know, we don't sort of stand here alone in splendid isolation. We have got to recognise the rest of the world is moving forward in in these areas. But what I don't understand, I mean, Arm, you know, the Chancellor at the time, Rishi Sunak, was pitching himself for this to happen. So I guess my worry is that if he, if he can if he couldn't get the arm listening, right? I mean the and rules were stacked against then, him. I guess well, arm also, would say. There's, so that was part of it, but also, and I think there were sort of a variety of other factors in this. But also, it's the way that government was organised. So Jerry Grimstone, who was the minister for investment at the time, did a lot of the heavy lifting on arm. Didn't quite manage to get it over the line. Obviously, if you exp- compare the experience of an international investor who's interested in France versus an international investor or a potential listing in the UK. Very different. You know, you can't move to in any other part of the world practically seeing the corner shop. You'll pop in and they've got President Macron on speed dial on their mobile phone. In fact, I think it's probably easier to list any business person. He lobbies. He's he's coming in next on the podcast. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about a fantastic place for answers to invest. The French do this phenomenally well, and we haven't. And we have rested on our laurels for far too long. uh, And I think there's been a consequence to that. We've been way too slow on this. And I think Brexit has acted as a little bit of a wake-up call that we can't simply keep relying on the kindness of strangers here. We need to make ourselves look a lot more attractive. We need the, the red carpet like the French did. Le yeah. Capier Rouge. Right, right. Come <laughs> that, to that, that side. Macron said. <laughs> Miles, thank you so much. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We will be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts, rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacroix. And me, David Merritt. It was produced by Summer Saadi. And additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Miles Selig. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.